All right, welcome to Crosspoint Wednesday night Bible study. We have been in the book of Romans. We are in chapter five tonight. We've been calling this Back to the Basics, kind of a reference to those pro sports teams that in the spring, like baseball, they go back and practice the basics, get ready for the season. I think it's important for us to also talk about the basics of our Christian faith. First several chapters of Romans talks about how that we are, we're all sinners. We have established that and then the last chapter that we worked on, chapter four, talked about how that we are justified by faith and it gave uh, several examples of Abraham and David. Uh, we've been talking about that and Paul here, who is the author of Romans, has been establishing from Romans chapter one to this current chapter, how that we can be justified by faith. And that's really been the theme. So he's established and hopefully we have believed that and, and, and taken that in, and taken it to heart. Uh, that we can be justified by faith. Now, Paul wants to talk about the benefits of our faith and of how we're justified. So uh, we have benefits to being believing in Christ and being justified uh, by faith. So let's begin with Romans chapter five. We'll read verses one and two and then talk a little bit in this first two verses about a couple of the benefits of being justified by faith. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace. But it doesn't stop there. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So at this point, Paul has convinced us that the only way of salvation is to be justified by grace through faith. Now he's telling us those practical benefits of being justified by faith. Justification is a spiritual and legal decree. God found us righteous. He declared that we are righteous, even though we are not perfect and we're not the only way that we are righteous is that we take on the righteousness of God through Christ Jesus. That's what Paul has been explaining throughout the first four chapters. So one, one of the benefits of our justification is that we have peace with God. Notice it does not say the peace of God, though we may have that as well, but we have peace with God. And that's the first benefit that Paul talks about here. Uh, the price for our salvation has been paid in full by Jesus' work on the cross. So we can have peace with God. We don't owe God anything because Jesus paid it all. I'm glad that uh, Jesus paid the, the price for me on the cross. Uh, and that payment was not only paid in full, but also it's been eternally satisfied. God is eternally satisfied with what Jesus did on the cross. So 
We have peace with God. The battle between God and ourself is finished. Did you know that your flesh, before you're saved, fights against God? Uh, we don't want to be obedient to the Lord. But the battle for between us and God when we are saved, it's finished. And Jesus won it for us. How many remember what Jesus said on the cross? It is finished. And so that eternal work of our salvation has been finished on the cross. Uh, and that is the grounds for our peace. Not only do we have peace, peace with God, and we have the peace of God that we kind of alluded to, but the Bible tells us literally that Jesus himself is our peace. And you can find that in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14. The second benefit that Paul starts to describe here is we have a standing in grace. We have a standing in grace. We have benefits of God's grace and not something that is going to disappear or something that is going to go away. Uh, it's been gained for us by Jesus Christ. So no one can take it away from us, right? We have a standing in grace. What is grace? We've been talking about that a little bit. It's God's undeserved favor. It's our only way of salvation is through grace. So we stand in grace is what this says. It translates into a perfect present tense in the Greek. Now, you may not know what that means, but it means it's now and forever. It's perfect present tense. So uh, we stand from now, I should say from the time of our salvation through the end of eternity in God's grace. It's a standing grace. Because of this standing grace, I don't have to prove that I'm worthy of God's love. How I many knows that without God's grace, we're not worthy? We can't earn it. We can't do enough good to earn God's grace, but he gives it to us. Because of God's grace, the Bible says that we are a friend of God. I'm glad I'm a friend of God uh, and I have that relationship with him. Because of grace, I'm free from the score sheet and the account has been settled. Uh, I love that uh, I'm free from the, the score sheet. Nobody is ticking off, oh, they did that right, but they did this wrong. And, you know, I'm trying to come to a tally. Uh, we don't have to worry about that because we are standing, we have a standing grace in the Lord. We have access, but we, we also have a firmness about our grace. Nobody's going to steal it. Nobody's going to take it away. We can stand in it. It's firm. It's sure. We have access by faith. Not only can we access our salvation, but we also can access the presence of the Lord. We can come into his presence by his grace. Uh, it's by his grace that we're able to come before the presence of the Lord, to enter his gates, uh, to come before him because of his grace. So we have access. One commentary says that the word access gives off the idea of an introduction to the personal chamber of a monarch. How many knows that you cannot just approach a king or a queen, but that you have to be introduced by someone 
who takes you into their presence. Well, it is our standing in grace and our justification that gives us access to the King of Kings. Uh, we, we can approach the monarch, the king, the king of kings, uh, because we've been introduced. And who's the introducer? Jesus. Uh, we've been introduced to that. So we have access. We have a permanent standing in grace. It cannot be taken away from us. So if you were going to go see a king or a queen, you would get if you were cleared and if you had someone to introduce you, you would get to come before the queen or the king, but you wouldn't be able to remain there. It was just for a short time that you could do that. But this access is a permanent access. We can remain in the presence of God. Aren't you glad to know that? It wasn't just like, oh, you can come in for a few minutes, but now because of God's grace, we have access to the throne of heaven and to God. Yeah, there's protocol. Protocol of, of, of what that uh, being in her presence would be like. Unless she speaks, you don't speak to her. It, when she comes into the room, you know, you're supposed to, to bow or she, whatever that protocol might be. But we have permanent and remaining access to God through Jesus Christ. The scripture there tells us to rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. The word rejoice means a triumphant confidence, assured that we can enter into God's presence, that we have been saved, that we have been justified, uh, that we have access to God, and we can rejoice because of that. We have a triumphant confidence uh, in our state because of what Christ has done. So rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We say the word hope a lot, uh, but it has a different meaning than sometimes we imply. I hope I win the lottery. How many really think you're going to? Very few. We might say I hope, but I would have a hard time winning the lottery because I don't play it. Hope, the word hope, if it were, you were to define it, is a happy certainty. So we can have hope in God, hope through Christ, and it's not uncertain. Our situation, our justification has been paid for, and we can be happy and certain about that. So it's a happy certainty. All right, let's look and read verses uh, three and four of Romans chapter five. So this is gonna talk about the promise of glory is for now, not just for the future. The promise of God's glory is for now and for eternity. It says, and not only that, but we also glory in tribulations. I mean, like tribulations. None of us, right? It says we glory in tribulations knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance, character, and character, hope. I know that we can experience tribulations. I want to ask online or here in person, how many have experienced some tribulations and some trials? All of us have, uh, but we also can glory in those. 
Did you know that God has a purpose for our tribulations? He may not bring those tribulations to us. He may allow them in our life, but it is for him to receive the glory and for us to grow and mature. Without stress, your body does not grow and mature. And so it's the same in the spirit when we begin to look at, at that. Literally, uh, the word tribulation means stresses. We talk about being stressed out. Uh, we are tribulationed out. We are stressed out. And a runner, if you look at this physically, must be strained, must be stressed, I should say, to gain endurance. Do you know how you get more endurance to run? You run more and you run until you get really tired and then you run some more. Then you rest and then you learn to run more and more. It's the stress that helps you gain endurance. I hated cross country. Hated it. We would go out and run five to eight miles in a day. But once I completed that running season, I was much better in track, which was the next season than I would have ever been because I gained endurance and I gained strength. So it's tribulations for the glory of God and for us to grow and to mature. So God uses tribulations in our life. He measures how much tribulation we have. He knows how much you can handle. God does. So he measures that and he helps us to have just enough stresses for us to grow, but not too much to break us down. If you lift too much weight in the gym, you can hurt yourself. But if you lift just the right amount and you have the right stresses, then your muscles will grow and you'll uh, be able to do more later on. Sometimes we don't want to grow that much. We don't want the tribulations, but that's true. So through tribulation, it produces perseverance. The ability to keep going and standing. That's really what that, that word means. And from perseverance, we gain character. How do we gain character from persevering? Well, we've been through something. We understand that it was hard and it was tough, but I made it, right? So we begin to gain character to realize that I can make it through these kinds of situations. And so we gain that character and because we have gained those experiences and that, and we've persevered and we've get, uh, gained that character, then we can have hope. All of this is a process that the Christian grows in maturity. One thing builds on another. Without it starting with tribulations, this process doesn't work. Nobody likes to have tribulations. But tribulations have a purpose in the life of a Christian. Uh, you can wish that you had better character and you could wish that you had more hope. But if your experiences don't start with some kind of tribulation, then that's not the pattern and the plan that God has. That's what he, he has for us. Those life events <laughs> begin to form and shape us and, and produce character and perseverance and all those uh, things. So, 
And it tells us here, hope does not disappoint. The hope that tribulation builds in us is not a hope that will be disappointed. So we're assured of this because God has proved his intention to work a complete work in us. So this hope that we develop through all those experiences, God is using it to develop us and we're not going to be disappointed in the results of this. We're going to grow from it. What is the proof of God's love? It's the Holy Spirit. The love of God poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit is the proof that God loves us. You want to know that God loves you? He pours out God's love upon you through the Holy Spirit. That's the agent that does that. And we need to have, all of us, every day, need to have a greater awareness that God loves us. He does. That he cares for us, that he uh, allows us to go through things, that we would grow and mature and become more like him and to experience his love for us in a greater way. Uh, so we need to have a deep awareness of God's love for us. And that love is communicated through the Holy Spirit. When we're filled with the Holy Spirit, then we uh, can experience that love. All right, let's move on to verses six through eight. For when we were still without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What an amazing uh, passage of scripture here as we look at that. When we were still without strength, I like the New Living Translation. As a matter of fact, I've preached this scripture before and I titled my sermon, When We Were Utterly Helpless. That's what the New Living Translation, uh, how it translates that. When we were utterly helpless, then Christ in due time died for us who were ungodly. Paul describes this greatness of God's love love that is given to us even though we don't deserve it uh, and without strength. In other words, we didn't earn it. We didn't work for it. We were utterly helpless. Mankind could not have saved himself. Adam and Eve set this ball rolling. No one can stop the path of sin without God's grace and God's mercy in their life. So uh, we were utterly helpless. I love that. In the, in the perfect time, uh, in the right time, God did it. And I know there's a scripture. Oh, here it is. Galatians 4, 4. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. So in, at just the right time in history, at just the right time spiritually, at just the right time, uh, any way that you look at it, Jesus came at the perfect time. When I see the word due time, I think about a woman being pregnant and the doctor gives her a, what, a due date. In other words, if he's calculated everything perfectly and the baby is as old as he thinks it is, then with everything went absolutely perfectly, this baby's due date would be X. 
Well, God did plan everything perfectly. He knew exactly what he was doing. And he fulfilled it all in the perfect due time. Right on time. It was when God said it, it's got to happen here. It's got to happen now. It's got to happen this way. Interesting how all of that happened. In due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Who are all those ungodly people? We are. That's what Romans 1, 2, and 3 describe to us is that all of us are ungodly. All of us have sinned and come short. None is righteous. No, not even one is what the Bible says. So we are those ungodly and wicked people that Jesus died for. Due time, Christ died for the world. The world was prepared in every way for the coming of Jesus and the spread of the gospel. Just think about the Roman Empire at the time when Jesus came. You know what the Romans were famous for? And one of their strengths was? They developed all kinds of road systems to get from one country to another because it was an empire. That's what caused the empire to function and work well was that you could easily get to from one place to the other. So imagine if Jesus had come at a different time when there was not a good road structure or system where the gospel could spread. So it was the absolute perfect due time. And that is just one aspect that we can see when we begin to look uh, how God planned it down to the absolute perfect details of just when Christ would come and when he would die and, and all of this, this whole plan. For scarcely, so it says Christ died for the ungodly. The Greek word there uh, means for the sake of. God, uh, God had Jesus die for our sake, not just for our sake, but on behalf of us or instead of us. Because we should have died for the sins that we have committed and the sins that we were born into. We should have died, but Jesus took our place. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. A good man might die for the right kind of person. We've seen a few instances historically where someone would die for a friend or someone would die for a person that they're trying to protect who was a good person. And that's scarce. That's what the Bible said. It's scarce that that will happen. But Jesus died for the unrighteous. For those who were enemies, the Bible tells us, of the cross. So he didn't just die for the good, for specific persons or ones who were, you know, had great potential, but he got, died for the ungodly and the unrighteous. How did God demonstrate his love. He did it by sending his only son. You could also say God demonstrated his love through the work that Jesus did on the cross. That was God's ultimate proof of his love for you, allowing his son to go to the cross and die. So God demonstrates his love for us by, by sending his only son to the cross to die for us. We might have additional proof. You know, God does good things for us. He does good things for us, but he can have no greater proof than Jesus going to the cross to die for us. 
That is the ultimate of his expression of love, is that Jesus going to the cross for our sins. For those of us who are sinners and rebels against God. All right, let's look at Romans chapter 5, verses 9 through 11. Salvation from God's wrath. This is what we're talking about. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we, we have now received the reconciliation. If we're justified by the works of Jesus, then we can be assured that we're also saved from wrath through him. Who's wrath? It's the wrath of God. Is that what, that's what we're saved from. We're saved from the wrath of God. We're not saved from the world. We're saved from the wrath of God. Now, we can be victorious over the world. We can live a, a good, prosperous life for the Lord, uh, but we are saved from God's wrath. God is so just that he always pours out his wrath uh, on sin. It is He will do it. He may wait. He may... Be merciful, but ultimately God will have to judge sin. So we, we have been saved from God's wrath. An interesting conversation in my Bible study this past Tuesday. We are not always saved from hard times. This is an ungodly world, and we are all experiencing, uh, just even now, we're experiencing uh, circumstances that came from COVID. We're experiencing circumstances that now are coming from the economy that was kind of disrupted and uh, all those kinds of things. We experience those things, but that, that is not the same thing as God's wrath. God's wrath is a different story. When we talked about Revelation and we've studied Revelation, that was a picture of God's wrath. So we're saved from, from God's wrath and we're saved because of what Jesus did. Uh, it's what Jesus did that saves us from the wrath of God. Now we're going to talk about two men. Two men, verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sin. Paul believed literally in Genesis chapter 3. How many knows what's in Genesis chapter 3? It's the fall of man, right? Adam and Eve sinned. They uh, did what God told them not to do. They rebelled against God. Paul literally believed in the historical truth of that. And he is telling us that Adam and Eve were real people and what they did had a lasting effect. How many knows there's always repercussions for sin? Here Paul is saying that because of what Adam did, specifically Adam, not Eve, and we'll talk about that, specifically because of what Adam did, that all of us are sinners, were born into sin, and will experience death. You know what the mortality rate is? 
It's 100%, right? <laughs> we'll all die unless the Lord takes us uh, by way of the rapture. Uh, there have been uh, one or two that did not die, but they will die. According to scripture, is appointed a man once to die and then the judgment. Because of Adam, it's important for us to know that Genesis chapter 3 should not be taken as an allegory. And I tell you, I've been, I've, I've been doing some studies and they give you all the thoughts and things that people think. And some people think that Genesis should be taken as an allegory. It's just a story that has a principle. No, it's real. It, it actually happened. So to Paul, Adam was more than a historical uh, individual. As a matter of fact, the word Adam in Hebrew simply means humanity. So Adam is the representative for all of humanity. Adam. Through one man that sin entered the world, it entered the world through Adam. Men, Adam is responsible for the fall of the human race, not Eve. Why do we say that? Because Eve was deceived when she sinned, but Adam had full knowledge when he sinned. You can find some scripture on that in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14. So Adam knowingly sinned, Eve was deceived. So it is through Adam that sin entered the world. Does that mean Eve didn't sin? No, but Adam was the representative for all mankind. So death entered the world and spread to all men as a result of Adam's sin. It came into the world. God promised Adam, told them, he declared it to him, that in the day that you eat of it, of this fruit that he was not supposed to eat of, that you will surely die. Adam didn't die immediately, did he? But he did die. Surely, it's going to happen. Yeah. Doesn't say exactly when. And every grave that you go to uh, is evidence that the that sin entering the world causes death. Every time you pass a, a tombstone, you we can know that. And all of us are sinners because Adam was a sinner. Now, to me, that doesn't seem fair. I don't know about you, but it doesn't seem fair that because Adam represented humanity that now I'm a sinner. But we'll talk a little bit about that. How many knows that we are an individualistic society? I'm going to do it myself. I'm in charge. I'm in control. But the Bible teaches us that we all sin in Adam. How are we in Adam? Everything, when Adam was made, and he was made by God's own hands, when Adam was made, within his genetic makeup, all of mankind, every trait was there within Adam's genetic makeup. So we are sinners in Adam. So if we're made sinners by Adam, through one man, then isn't it fair for us to be made righteous by one man? And that one man is, you know, Jesus. We're made righteous through that one man, Jesus. Because if everybody was individually responsible, and we are responsible in that manner for our sin, we have to, we're accountable for it, 
But from a humanity standpoint, Adam represented all of humanity and Jesus comes to change that picture for all of humanity. We can be made righteous only through Jesus, not through our own uh, self. Let's read verses 13 and 14. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. So really, we've kind of talked about this. Without the law, sin couldn't be imputed. Although Paul also said that because we would break our conscience, then we would be sinners as well. Uh, so at the root of all of this, uh, we're made sinners because of Adam and not because we broke the law ourselves. We're sinners and born into sin, not because we break the law ourselves, but because we are associated and represented by Adam. We still break it, and we're guilty and accountable for that, but it's because of Adam that we are all sinners. He set the path. We would have all still ended up the same way, no matter if it was him or me who was at the beginning, but it is the path that sin uh, produces. You are not. You're a new creature. I'm, I'm talking about mankind. Mankind is all sinners without Christ. Without Christ, mankind has no hope to ever be anything but a sinner. Once we have accepted Christ as our Savior, then what does the Bible say? We're a new creature in Christ Jesus. Behold, all things have become new. We're still not sin-free, even in that. We still sin. Now, we may not sin all the time, and we may not be uh, enslaved to sin, but we do sin. And that's a good point. Sanctification, we're constantly being sanctified. So we are maturing and growing in, in God. But even Second Kings, which talks about Solomon, who was the greatest king ever and the wisest king ever, you know what it says about him? If you look in Second Kings, it tells us that every man sins. And he was the greatest, wisest man ever, the Bible tells us. As a whole, mankind is, is a sinner, as a whole. So you have two types here. You have Adam and you have Jesus. And Adam is a type of him who was to come. He is a representative of mankind. Jesus is a representative of for us of what we can be in him, which is a sinless man. So uh, because of what Jesus did, the consequences are that we can be saved and that we are saved. We'll, we'll never uh, approach or even come close to what Jesus is. But it's okay. That's not what God expects. God expects us to put our faith and trust in what Jesus did and then continue this growing process of being sanctified and being justified. So let's read verses 15 through 17. But the free gift is not like the offense. So the free gift is what Jesus brought to us. For if by the one man's offense many died, that's Adam, that caused many to die because of sin, 
Much more, the grace of God and the gift by the grace of one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation. So what Adam did and the judgment for that resulted in the condemnation for all men. But the free gift, which is what Jesus paid for for us, which came from many offenses, resulted in justification. For if by the one man's offense, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. So we reign, uh, we have abundance of grace, the gift of righteousness uh, because of Jesus Christ. So under Jesus, we can reign in this life. I know what Carol's saying. I don't ever feel like a sinner all the time. Do I sin? Yeah, and I ask for forgiveness because the Holy Spirit convicts me. And we, and we should. But can I tell you that the Christian ought to be reigning in life? Not just, oh, I'm constantly under the attack of sin. That's not a victorious life. And because of what Jesus did, we can reign in this life. We can do good things and, and, and be uh, victorious and uh, all, all of those kinds of things so we can reign in this life. So this is a summary of the two men. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. All of this talk, and everyone is either identified in Adam or Jesus. Everybody's justified by this free gift. They can be, but they are not all justified. Paul here is teaching us that not everybody's saved. As a matter of fact, the term used for the thought that everybody's eventually saved is called universalism. And it is a false teaching. Not everyone is saved by what Christ did. You have to receive that and choose that for yourself. Not everyone has received the free gift. And he gave it, yeah. No, it's not lost in the mouth. It is a conscious decision for us to be associated or identified, represented by Jesus Christ. It's a conscious decision for us. And once we make that, then we're connected with him. We're Christians. We're uh, new creatures, as the Bible says. All those things uh, are associated, we're associated with that. So it was Adam's disobedience that made every man a sinner, and it was Jesus' obedience that can make everyone righteous, though not all will receive that. So look at verse 20. Skipping down a little bit. I want to talk about, for just a few minutes, the purpose of the law. We've been talking about the purpose of the law. Paul loves to talk about the law because Paul was a student of the law, and he was a Jewish man. It says, moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. What's that saying? Is that saying that the purpose of the law was so that we would sin more? It wasn't the purpose of the law for us to sin more. 
It was one of the results of the law. So the a law entered that the offense might abound. The law shows us what sin is. It doesn't make us sinners. Adam is the one that made us sinners and our own purposeful choices. But the law makes it clear what is God's standard. Before knowing what God's standard is, sin did not abound as much as it did when people knew what God's standard was. That's what this is saying. Now, let me tell you something about our nature as humans. If I was to draw a line right here, yeah, but most people's tendency as humans would be to cross the line because we always test the boundaries. That's what Adam and Eve did. They tested the boundaries. God said, don't eat of this fruit lest you die. All it took was a suggestion by the serpent uh, so it's in the human nature when it's spelled out what's wrong is to want and desire that. I don't know why that's true, but it is true in general. Not everybody. The, the unfortunate thing is you may not be a lawbreaker, but you might still be unrighteous. Yeah. Yeah. But that's, that's, yeah, that's exactly what Paul's saying here. Yeah. Uh, is because the law that pointed out what sin is and so now I, I can yeah, be a lawbreaker. And then that boundary, for some reason, I don't know why, but that's the way we are as humans. When it says, don't do this, that's the exact thing that we want to do. Uh, but the good news in Romans chapter 5, verse 20 and 21 here, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so, grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. If sin abounded under the law, then grace abounded much more under Jesus. That uh, abounded much more is super abounded. That's what that word means. It's super abounded. The good news for us is that even when sin abounds, grace abounds, even more. The good news uh, for mankind is that we can't sin more than God can forgive. Now, we can reject his grace and his forgiveness, but we can't sin more than he can forgive. 